You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers developments across all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All the comments are current at the time of podcast publication. It's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row, and this edition is presented by Emma Louise Fenelon. As listeners will be aware, the Supreme Court decision in Montgomery considered the approach to a breach of duty in informed consent cases. This podcast has covered this issue in a number of episodes, most recently in two very popular interviews with James Badenoch QC and John Whitting QC, both of One Crown Office Row. And here with me to consider Montgomery Stage 2, i.e. what happens where the Montgomery duty has been breached and how the court should approach causation, is Robert Keller, soon to be Robert Keller QC, also from One Crown Office Row. Rob, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Emma. The law on this issue has been in some uncertainty since the decision of the House of Lords in Chester and Afshar. Can you tell us a little bit about the facts of this case? Yes, the the claimant in that case in Chester was advised to undergo a surgical procedure on her spine, which carried with it a small risk of quadriquina syndrome. The risk was about 1 or 2%. She reluctantly agreed to undergo the procedure, but regrettably was not told anything about the risk. She went on to develop quadriquina, and the judge unsurprisingly found that there'd been negligence by the treating surgeon in failing to warn her about the risks, in particular the risk of quadriquina. Importantly, there was no finding by the court, and the court wasn't invited to find, that she would have refused to undergo the procedure if she had been properly consented. But crucially, the judge found that she would have taken advice on alternatives to surgery, would have had a think about it, and that the surgery wouldn't have taken place on the day that it did if she had been properly consented. And so if the surgery had taken place on a later day, because the risks of caldera equina were so small, it wouldn't have occurred. It was a controversial decision, and the House of Lords ultimately ruled by a narrow majority. Can you tell us a little bit about how the majority reasoned their decision? Well, yes. The House was, in fact, split 3-2 in the claimant's favour in that case. There was a general agreement by their lordships that the case couldn't succeed on conventional principles. Why not? Well, it was accepted that the narrow but-for principle was satisfied in the sense that if the surgery had taken place on a later date, it's unlikely to have occurred because, of course, the risk of caldera occurring on any one day was only ever 1% to 2%. But, said the court, but-for causation wasn't enough on its own to render the absence of informed consent an effective cause in law. And that was really because the risk of quadriquina was equally likely to occur whenever the surgery occurred and in whichever surgeon's hands. The surgery occurring when it did, whether it occurred early or late, had not in any way increased the risk of injury. A delay in surgery would not have decreased the risk. And so what the court said was that, as a general rule, a factor which does no more than secure the presence of a person in the place where or at the time when the injury occurs is not causally connected in law with the injury. But for three of the law lords, that's to say Stein, Hope and Walker, there were other factors at play which required a non-conventional approach to causation. The first of those, mirroring what Lady Hale observed later in Montgomery, was that particular weight needed to be placed on the importance of patient autonomy and self-determination. 
the court conceived personal autonomy as a fundamental human right. It was what made it possible to live a meaningful life as an individual. It was so important that they felt that it needed to be given effective protection wherever possible, even if that meant a departure from conventional principles on causation. So that was factor number one. The second factor was that the injury that was suffered by poor Miss Chester was within the scope of the duty to warn. The injury was counter equina. That was the very thing that Miss Chester should have been warned about. It wasn't some completely unrelated risk that eventuated for her. And so because of those two factors, breach of the right to autonomy and the injury being within the scope of the duty to warn, the majority felt that a departure from the conventional test on causation was merited. In simple terms, what does this mean for the law of causation? Well, certainly at the time of the decision itself, it's not entirely clear. I mean, my own thesis on reading the decision back is that the House of Lords felt that they were doing something quite dramatic and groundbreaking. There's a huge emphasis in the decision on the right to autonomy, a huge emphasis on the importance of granting a remedy where that right had not been respected, where it had been breached, so to speak. My own personal view, and it's a personal view, is that their lordships felt that they were making it easier to get home, on causation at least, where informed consent had not been properly performed, where personal autonomy had not been properly respected. But certainly there is another way of looking at the case, and one way of looking at the case, and Lord Stein said this in terms, was that it was really just a narrow departure from ordinary principles, which was confined to the unusual facts of the case before the court. So on that reading of the decision, it only gives rise to a remedy if a claimant can prove at trial that they wouldn't have gone ahead with surgery on the day that it had occurred if they'd been properly consented to a particular risk, if they can show that if they'd waited and had the surgery later, the same risk would not have eventuated because the risk was always so small, and if they can also show that the very risk which they should have been consented to but were not was the one that occurred and caused them injury. So that is the other way of looking at the case, and as it's proved to be, that's the way in which the courts have gone on to interpret it. And as you say, that's quite a number of qualifications or hurdles that a claimant would have to overcome to to succeed. And since Chester and Afshar, we've seen that the Court of Appeal has considered these principles in a number of other cases, and it's probably fair to say that in general those decisions have tended to confine Chester to its own particular facts. That's right, Emma. I mean, a good example is the case of Meikle John from 2014. It's a case in which Richard Booth, QC, now head of chambers here, was involved in. Richard was acting for a claimant who was suffering from aplastic anemia, which is a life-threatening failure of formation of blood cellular components. And that required him to take medication. And one of the effects of that medication was that he unfortunately needed a bilateral hip replacement due to side effects. It was alleged at first instance, that there was a failure to warn him about alternative treatments and the risks of the medication which caused him injury. The claimant failed at first instance, but sought to argue on appeal that the judge had got it wrong. And what was argued in reliance upon Chester was that having found a breach of duty, causation should follow to, quote-unquote, give purpose to the breach. 
that argument was rejected in pretty robust terms by Lady Justice Rafferty, who said that Chester was at best, in her words, a modest acknowledgement couched in terms of policy of narrow facts far from analogous to those we are considering, and reference to it does not advance the case for the claimant since she could not identify within it any decision of principle. And that was quite a robust decision, and it sets the tone really for later decisions about the scope and effect of Chester and Afshar. The 2017 decision of Shaw and Kovach is another interesting Court of Appeal decision on point. In that case, the family of a man who died following a trans-aortic valve implant brought an action for negligence on the basis that he had not been given sufficient information about the risks involved in using a new type of valve. Although the judge made an award for general damages, a separate award for loss of personal autonomy was rejected. Yeah, that's right. And that case, as you say, went up to the Court of Appeal and the court pretty robustly endorsed the finding of the judge below. And it's a quite an important decision because it really rules out in any way the option of claimants getting one might think of as vindicatory damages for breach of the right to autonomy. The Court of Appeal pointed out that vindicatory damages had been rejected as a remedy even in cases of egregious violations of basic constitutional rights. For example, they weren't even permitted in cases of unlawful detention following the Supreme Court's decision in Lumber. Um, the court observed that if vindicatory damages were routinely made in informed consent cases without proof of conventional causation, this could also result in an undesirable proliferation of claims. Such claims would arise, for example, even if the operational procedure was a complete success, and even if the claimant would have gone the same procedure in any event on the evidence. So the court had real floodgates concerns about the availability of vindicatory damages and rejected them for that reason. Interestingly, in that case, though, the court did observe that interference with the right to personal autonomy could, in an appropriate case at least, be compensated for by an award of damages for pain, suffering and loss of amenity. There was an analogy drawn with damages for mental anguish, humiliation and distress in assault cases. If the claimant could show that his or her suffering had been increased by the fact that their personal autonomy had been infringed, then there was no reason in principle, said the Court of Appeal, why that couldn't inform the assessment and the award of general damages. So that case, Shaw and Kovach, does give claimants something to hang their coat on if they're trying to seek a remedy for breach of their right to autonomy. As you mentioned in Meeklejohn, the suggestion that Chester principles might be in play was dismissed in fairly robust terms. And obviously, that same feeling was reiterated in the case of Shaw, in which the family's suggestion that there ought to be a separate award for a loss of personal autonomy was rejected in fairly trenchant terms. And then, of course, we have the case of, and you'll forgive me if I mispronounce this, Duce. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Deuce or Duce, I'm not quite sure of the correct pronunciation, is an interesting case. The facts in summary were that the claimant hadn't been properly consented, at least on her case, to the risk of chronic post-surgical pain following a total abdominal hysterectomy. 
she argued that even if she couldn't succeed on conventional causation principles, that she was entitled to succeed under the exceptional Chester and Afshar principle. The court rejected that submission. It emphasised, importantly, that even under Chester, one still needed to show but-for causation. And indeed, as was pointed out by the court, the claimant in Chester itself could, of course, show that if the surgery for had taken place on a later date, that she wouldn't have had Cowder-Aquina syndrome. So uh, in Duch or Duche, the court characterised Chester itself as a but-for case. But what's interesting about the case, as you point out, Emma, is that Lord Justice Leggett went even further and suggested that the time may well be ripe to re-examine Chester itself. He made a number of interesting observations about the decision in Chester and why it might be time to think afresh about the decision. He pointed out, that in everyday life, a person isn't generally regarded as as having caused an accident if they've done nothing to increase the risk of it happening. So, for example, if a taxi driver's driving above the speed limit down a main road and a tree by the carriageway falls over and crushes one of the passengers, speeding of the taxi's not causative because it did nothing to increase the risk of the accident occurring. The accident might equally well have happened if the driver had been observing the speed limit. And so, by analogy, in the tort of clinical negligence, if a breach of informed consent has done nothing to increase the risk of injury occurring, it's difficult to see why causation should be regarded as having been made out. He also pointed out that if we're going to use the tort of negligence to protect autonomy, then what we should really be compensating claimants for is the infringement of that particular right, not giving them money to compensate them for an injury which hasn't been caused, at least in any conventional sense, by the defendant's breach of duty. Finally, he, interestingly in my view, thought that it might be better to look at the problem which cases like Chester were designed to address. And on one view, it was really appropriate to conceive as the problem as one of burden of proof. In other words, it was always difficult for claimants in situations like Miss Chester's to prove what it is that they would have done but for the failure to to give them informed consent. It's the, the problem of hindsight. And so the question is, how do you provide a remedy to someone who, like Miss Chester, is unsure of what they would have done? And where the reason they're unsure is because they weren't given an opportunity at the time to think about things, and now it's difficult to reconstruct their decision because of the problem of hindsight. And one of the things which the judge suggested was that given that it's the defendant themselves who's created that difficulty because of its own breach of duty, one fair solution might be to think about reversing the burden of proof. In other words, to assume that the claimant would not have consented if she'd been properly informed of risks and alternatives, unless the defendant can prove the contrary. Now, that might be thought of as a bit of a radical solution, and his observations and thoughts on the matter are obiter, but it may well be a theme that's picked up in due course by the Supreme Court if if the issue arises again. And then obviously we come to CAN and MNX, a 2018 case involving former head of chambers Philip Havers QC, in which the Court of Appeal revisited Chester in the context of claims for wrongful birth. Can you tell us a little bit about the facts of that case? 
Yeah, sure. So the claimants in that case had sought advice from a GP about whether she was at risk of giving birth to a child with haemophilia. The GP wrongly performed some blood tests for haemophilia instead of doing what he should have done, which was to refer the claimant for the necessary genetic testing. As a result of the negligent advice that she subsequently received from the same GP, she was led to believe that she wasn't at risk of giving birth to a child with haemophilia. And subsequently, of course, she gave birth to a child with precisely that condition. And the judge accepted at first instance that had she been referred for the genetic testing that she should have got, she would have chosen to terminate the pregnancy and the child born with haemophilia would never have been born. What happened is that the child was not only born with haemophilia, but also was diagnosed with autism. And the question for the court was whether, in a wrongful birth type claim, the defendant was liable for the costs attributable to the upbringing of a child with both haemophilia and autism, or whether the defendant was liable only for the costs in relation to haemophilia. And we know that at first instance, Mrs Justice Yip held that the defendant was liable for the costs of upbringing related to both autism and haemophilia. And in coming to that conclusion, she held that there was an analogy with Chester. As in Chester, but for causation was made out, it was unlikely that the claimant's child would have suffered autism as a result of a subsequent pregnancy, the risks of any particular child being born with autism being small. So while the risk of autism was not the focus of the duty to warn, the purpose of the consultation was to provide the claimant with information that would allow her to terminate her pregnancy, and which she would in fact have terminated. There was, therefore, a close analogy with failed sterilisation cases, and in such cases, all disability-related costs were recoverable. This decision then went to the Court of Appeal, which ruled in a slightly different way. Can you tell us a little bit about the decision? Well, I can. I mean, those listening to this podcast might want at this stage to put a cold towel over their heads because it's really quite a a difficult decision to get one's head around conceptually. At least one might want to read the decision a couple of times before one understands it. But I'll try and do my best. The Court of Appeal held that the the central test was that affirmed by the court in the Samco decision. And that decision, Samco, The full name is South Australian Asset Management Corporation and York Montague Limited, so you can understand why it's been abbreviated to to SAMCO. But that case is authority for this proposition, that as a matter of general principle, where person A provides advice or information to person B, and where person B relies upon that information to make a decision, person A is not responsible for all of the consequences of person B's decision. Person A is only responsible for the consequences of the specific information that he provided being incorrect or being wrong. Now, that's a difficult concept, of course, to get one's head around. But fortunately, Lord Hoffman illustrated the principle with an example. He asked those reading his judgment to conduct a a thought experiment and to imagine a mountaineer about to undertake a difficult climb who was concerned about the fitness of his knee. He goes to his GP, who negligently makes a superficial examination and wrongly pronounces the knee fit. The climber then goes on the expedition, which he wouldn't have undertaken had the doctor told him the true state of his knee. 
And whilst on the expedition, he suffers an injury which is an entirely foreseeable consequence of mountaineering. Let's say, for example, he falls down a crevice, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the state of his knee. In that situation, said Lord Hoffman, the doctor is obviously not liable. Why? Well, it's because the injury is not being caused by the doctor's bad advice. It's an injury which would have occurred even if the advice had been correct. And so applying Samco and applying Lord Hoffman's mountaineer analogy, the claimant's child's autism was not caused in any real sense by the doctor's advice about haemophilia. The claimant was just as likely to have a child born with autism, even if the GP's advice about haemophilia had been correct. The autism in that sense was nothing to do with the GP's advice about haemophilia. The Court of Appeal also referred to another decision, that of Hughes Holland and BPE solicitors and another. Yeah, um, to further clarify the court's thinking, it referred to the, the Hughes Holland case that you've alluded to, and, and the facts don't matter too much. It was commercial litigation, for what it's worth, involving a claim for negligent misstatement against solicitors. But Lord Sumption, in the Hughes-Holland case, referred to a distinction between advice cases on the one hand and information cases on the other. In advice cases, the defendant took responsibility for guiding the whole of the decision-making process. So if the advisor in such a case got the advice wrong, it was fair and right that he was liable for all of the consequences of the decision taken in reliance upon that advice. In the other category of case, so that's to say information cases, the defendant took responsibility only for providing limited information, which was only one aspect of a broader decision for which the claimant took responsibility. The defendant isn't responsible for the decision itself. The defendant's only responsible for the consequences of the limited information he provided being wrong. So what did this mean for the Court of Appeals ruling in Khan? Well, applying that distinction between advice cases on the one hand and information cases on the other, the defendant GP in the Khan case did not take responsibility for advising the claimant in relation to whether to get pregnant. The GP only advised in relation to the risks of haemophilia. The decision whether to get pregnant or not was entirely a matter for the claimant, and the claimant effectively assumed the risk of any other disability that might arise from her pregnancy, including autism. If she'd been asked, said the Court of Appeal, at any stage during the pregnancy about the risks she was prepared to assume, she would have said that she would have been prepared to accept the risk of a child born with autism. For what it's worth, the Court of Appeal also looked, as you've said, at Chester and Afshar and pointed out that that case was distinguishable because the central reasoning in Chester was the fact that the misfortune that had befallen the claimant was the very misfortune that the defendant had the duty to warn the claimant against. However, in the case before the court, the development of autism was an entirely coincidental injury and not one, said the court, that was within the scope of the GP's duty to warn. So where then does this leave us in terms of causation and consent? This is really my own two penneth, but if I had to affirm my own Rob Keller principles for causation in these sorts of cases, they'd really be these. First, that in order to succeed under conventional principles, a claimant must prove that he or she would not have consented to the operation or procedure if he or she had been properly consented to the risk and also that the risk to which he or she was not consented was the risk that materialises causing injury. Second, 
where the claimant's able to prove that he or she would not have consented to the operation, it doesn't follow that every loss following from the operation or procedure will be recoverable. The claimant's only able to recover damages where that is connected to or falls within the scope of the duty to warn that's been breached. So a claimant's not able to recover for a risk which is wholly unrelated to that which they should have been consented for. So just to illustrate that with an example, if a claimant's undergoing an operation on his or her throat and there's a negligent failure to warn of the risk of damage to the larynx, the doctor won't be liable if the patient in fact succumbs to an adverse reaction to anaesthetic during the operation. As far as Chester and Afshar is concerned, well, my view is it's rarely possible to succeed on a Chester and Afshar claim other than in facts or on facts which are closely analogous to Chester itself. A claimant relying on the Chester and Afshar principles must always show that he or she would have delayed the procedure but for the absence of informed consent. They must prove but for causation. That's to say they've got to show that on a later date the damage was unlikely to occur and the damage that suffered must always be within the scope of the duty to warn. Claimants will always need to expressly plead Chester and Afshar in the particulars of claim and there's never going to be a viable claim for breach of the right to personal autonomy as a freestanding head of loss. What claimants can do is they can, in principle, recover damages for pain, suffering and loss of immunity caused by knowing that their autonomy has been invaded through want of informed consent. Again, this would always need to be properly pleaded and proved with some evidence and support. It might always be helpful to have a report from a consultant psychiatrist saying, if this is the psychiatrist's opinion, that the fact that claimant suffered injury has been uh, not only suffered or caused the suffering of injury, but has also caused depression or psychiatric injury because of the knowledge that that's something they should have been consented for. In my view, and it's only a personal view, and I haven't seen this pleaded in very many cases, but if you've got a case, an informed consent case, where what you're really complaining about is the breach of the right to an autonomy, you could, in principle, bring a claim for breach of Article 8 ECHR. Again, you'd have to plead it, prove it. In practical terms, the difficulty with an Article 8 claim is, of course, the particular limitation periods, the one-year limitation period that arises under the Human Rights Act. So in many cases, claimants' listers are going to find themselves out of time. And if you're a defendant's lister, that's the sort of point you want, you're going to want to be alive to if uh, Article 8 is pleaded against you. It may well be that the claimants in Cannes seek permission to appeal to the Supreme Court, Assuming they do this and it's granted, there is likely to be reconsideration of the Chester principles at the highest level. Are you taking any bets? Um, I don't have any bets, but it's my understanding, and uh, it may be that I am emailed and told that this is all wrong, but my, my present understanding is that the claimants are seeking to appeal to the Supreme Court, although that application's not yet to been determined. It'll be very interesting to see if the case does make it to the Supreme Court and if it does, whether and to what extent Chester is revisited. My own personal view is that the law of causation in informed consent cases is ripe for clarification. In a sense, we've had 
clarification of breach of duty in Montgomery. And it's about time, in my view, we had the counterpart of Montgomery in respect of causation. Whether Khan's going to be that case remains to be seen, but uh, hopefully at some point the Supreme Court will get around to looking at the point. Rob, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. LawPod UK was presented by Emma-Louise Fenelon and is produced by One Crown Office Row. For more editions of LawPod UK, you can subscribe to the podcast and recommend us to a friend.